Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dina Verley, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest. But first, I want to give you a quick update. At the time of this recording, this episode, we are rolling into marathon season, literally. Uh, we've had runners either running, having just finished, or getting ready for races in Berlin, London, Twin Cities, Chicago, and New York City, and other events across the country. We've also had gyms and group fitness teams hosting push-pull events and all sorts of other fundraisers. And I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who is helping to spread awareness, raise funds, and help us fight for World Without Pancreatic Cancer, especially this November, as November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. If you'd like to see how you can get involved, visit projectpurple.org and follow us on all social media channels at Project Purple. Without further ado, I welcome our guests on today's podcast, Michael and Missy Skaggs. Welcome to the Project Purple podcast, coming to us all the way from the Detroit area. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Doing good. Well, so full disclosure, uh, I had it in the calendar to have Michael on, and then we've got Missy here today, which is awesome. I love when this, Missy, you just made that face. Come on. No, I love when we get spouses on together. Um, we're going to get into your your guys' backstory. Michael, you're a survivor. You did something really amazing. That's how we kind of connected. But um, I think this is really important. Um, and we've had a lot of people that are going through the battle bring on their significant other with them on the podcast. I didn't know ahead of time, but it doesn't change anything. But I, I think that dynamic is really awesome and cool because... I think sometimes when we, we've done so many podcasts with survivors, with just the one person, and as you guys know, and, and I'm sure this will come up, when you're fighting cancer, it, it impacts everyone around you and those closest to you, right? That family unit. So that spouse, even though they're not going through the day-to-day chemotherapy treatments, the pain, you know, everything that's associated with, with that cancer they're still experiencing the cancer in this very unique and different way. And I think a lot of times we don't talk about that. And I say we, I'm not just saying Project Purple, but I'm saying the space, right? And, and the one thing that I will say, and I'm going to hand this over here in a second to Michael and Missy, I've never had, and we've had probably over 100 survivors on the podcast, and no one's ever said, hey, I did it alone. Like I did this all by myself. I didn't have any help. I was able to figure, I was Superman or Superwoman. Yes, you are Superman or Superwoman because you're beating cancer, but you have a team behind you. We've talked a lot about that, right? Like having that team and having those supports and how critical those people are in your life. So I just love it when when spouses come on and, and, and we do these like, you know, three people podcasts, which is awesome uh, because I think that is really, um, you know, it really shows what the family goes through and what that person battling goes through. But then also we have this unique ability to show what that caregiver goes through. So it, it's just awesome. So thank you guys for, for jumping on here. And uh, as I said, before we hit record, our first part of our podcast is always the guest opportunity to kind of share their background, their journey with pancreatic cancer. 
And as I said before we hit record uh, to Michael and Missy is you guys can go as far back as you want and you can say as high level as you want. Uh, with that, I'm going to hand it over to Michael and Missy to share their journey with pancreatic cancer, what brings them here today on the Project Purple podcast. Before I really go into details about my journey, I just want to reiterate what you were saying about having somebody in this role. I mean, I, I didn't think twice about when I found out you wanted to do this podcast. I didn't think twice about having her with you. I was just automatically assumed on my part that she's here because you're right. She she didn't get diagnosed with cancer, but it was her diagnosis too because she lived with it from... I mean, it took me months to get my, my diagnosis and she went through all that with me. And then once I did get the diagnosis, she was there every step of the way. And that, that's my strength to get through it. And you're right. They, they don't go through the chemo, but to me, I, I think it would be harder for me to watch her go through it. And I would rather go through it myself because I, I don't know how she did it. And especially with this diagnosis, this disease, the reality of, you know, living long with this, that that is what it is. But at some point, if that's what happens to me, I'll be at peace. She's the one that's got to live on after that. So, and my family, my girls, you know, we have four girls, uh, two grandkids. They're the ones that are going to have to live on with that even after I'm gone. If that's what happens. So it really does affect them differently, but just as heavily. It's powerful stuff. So let's talk about the journey and how and when you were diagnosed and, and what that's been like uh, to bring us up to speed where you guys are today. Well, we're both runners. We've been uh, avidly running for the last 10, 10 years or so. And October of 2018, we had just finished the Detroit Marathon. And I, I did pretty good. I, I felt great. I was in the shape of my life. And a couple of weeks after that, I went down to visit my dad uh, for his birthday. And I noticed something kind of weird in my stomach. It just didn't feel right, but I just thought it was, you know, an upset stomach. Thought maybe it was something, maybe I pulled something during the race. You know, I didn't really know what was going on. And got into December and started getting more abdominal pain, more, you know, more upset stomach. I was having a hard time eating. And she kept trying to get me to go to the doctor. And I, oh, I'll wait, I'll wait. I didn't want to deal with anything at Christmas time. We had a family vacation planned to Mexico in January of 2019. I didn't want it to interfere, you know, anything to interfere with that trip because we were taking all the girls down. Um, when we got down to Mexico, that it was the second week of January, I, I was miserable. I mean, I, I really couldn't enjoy the trip. And she made me promise when I get back to start seeing somebody. And I, I really thought maybe I had a hurting at that point. Visited my primary care doctor uh, early January, and she thought maybe it was an ulcer. So we started that typical uh, algorithm that the, the GI docs like to lay out when you've got something unknown going on, wants to a scope. So they, they did an upper endoscopy. We did a lower endoscopy just because it was close to my time for being checked anyways uh, for colorectal diseases. 
and I was 47 at the time. Uh, those tests came back fine, but I was continuing to have issues with digestion. I was having a lot more abdominal pain. I was starting to get a really weird pain in my back that just didn't go away. And losing weight. I started to lose quite a bit of weight. I went through, I had CTs, I had uh, nuclear medicine scans done, MRIs, everything was going back normal. And I remember it was probably the first week of April. Um, we're both nurses and we work. Um, happened to have uh, one of the ED doctors on our floor one morning and I told him, you know, this is just not going away. I need to go in. So he told me to go over to the ER. Um, I got checked in. I ended up being admitted for a couple of days and, you know, they couldn't find anything. Every test that they did on me looked normal. Like, I, you know, I didn't have the jaundice that a lot of people have. Uh, I just had unexplained abdominal pain and losing weight rapidly. Hmm. Um, they said that I had irritable, irritable bowel syndrome that was precipitated by depression. And I had no issues with depression, at least not before I was, you know, losing weight and, you know, starting to get sick. But it was a very uh, generic diagnosis. Didn't give me any answers. A couple of weeks later, um, I went back into the ER at University of Michigan, hoping that they could find something there. They didn't really find anything different either. The GI doctor that I had been seeing um, finally kind of threw up his hand and said, look, we can't find anything. I don't know what's going on. So I just want you to eat some more yogurt and fiber for a couple of months. And if you're still having pain, come back and see. And the pain was unbearable. I mean, I was, I, I knew at that point I'm dying. There's, there's something wrong. I don't know what's going on. Nobody's giving me any answers. And I happened to have a coworker that knew of a surgeon at the University of Michigan that had helped the neighbor uh, with, uh, I'm not sure what their issue was, but she just said he was a real good surgeon and he was very helpful. So I asked my primary care if I could get a referral down to see this surgeon and finally got down to see him at the beginning of May, 2019. You know, and I, I thought he was going to say the same thing. You know, I'm sorry, I can't find anything. You know, he let me tell my story and and he said, well, I've looked through all your images that you've had done, all your labs. You've looked through everything that I had uh, done over the last six months. And, you know, he said, I think there's something there that we need to be concerned with. And in a matter of seconds, he's talking cancer, surgery, chemo. And, I, you know, at that point, we both, I, I kind of knew that that's what it was. Because, you know, I'm a nurse, I was able to read through and put enough of the dots together to come up with that on my own. I just couldn't get the doctors because nobody believed that this healthy guy that is out running marathons and doesn't smoke, he's not a heavy drinker, he's not overweight, you know, the typical risk factors. Um, no history. So nobody thought that this could be pancreatic cancer. Well, this surgeon finally got the ball rolling. I went in a couple of days later for an upper endoscopy with a biopsy and they, they knew right there uh, in the room, they tested the sample and it was positive for endocarcinoma. And 
you know, I remember laying in that bed after my GI procedure. And when I came to, the surgeon was standing right next to me. And I, I looked over and I saw my wife at the door and she was crying. And the doctor, you know, she kind of knelt down next to me. She said, I'm really sorry, but we found cancer. And, you know, as hard as it was to hear, I was relieved. Um, not because I wanted cancer, but at least I finally had an answer. And I knew, you know, I knew what the, the prospects, what the prognosis is with this disease, but at least it gave us some place to start a fight. And, you know, I, Michigan Medicine did everything they could to get me started on treatment right away. The surgeon was uh, optimistic that he could do surgery, but my oncologist wasn't so optimistic because the, I mean, the tumor was pretty wrapped around uh, a lot of vascular structures in the pancreas. Um, you know, the surgeon said if I hadn't gotten in when I did, you know, a couple of months it might have gone. But they got me, uh, they got me rolling. Uh, I started Bolfirinox, pretty common treatment. I uh, did that every other week. And the first couple of weeks were pretty rough, but um, by my birthday in 2019, I had lost, that was my lowest weight since I had finished the marathon. I went from about 190 down to 140, 145. And after my third or fourth treatment with Folk I finally started to gain some weight back. She planned a trip for us, uh, the youngest girls, and her dad went with us to Washington, D.C., which is one of the things I had always wanted to do. One of my bucket list items was to go watch the fireworks in D.C. Um, she made that happen, but at that time, I was not able to walk much further than from you know the bed to the couch. So anything that we did, we had to take a wheelchair, and they wheeled me through the airport. First couple of days, we were down in D.C. They were pushing me around. And I just had enough. I I was so frustrated. I felt pretty useless as a human. And I knew I had to like take this fight to the next level. So the next, I think it was the third day we were there. I said, I'm not taking this wheelchair. I said, I will walk as far as I can. If I can't make it, I'll come back to the room, but I'm not doing it anymore. I think we ended up walking five or six miles that day. Yeah. It was over 100 degrees in DC. And but, he, yeah, he just turned it around from there. Like that, that was the day. And it just, everything turned around. It was, that yeah, was amazing. So why, if you look back, I know no, hindsight's twenty twenty. So up until this point, I mean, it's, you know, that you, you said, Michael, like, hey, like this was a blessing. I wouldn't say blessing, but it was a relief that you knew what was going on. But then, you know, starting the treatment and then what happened in D.C. that just was kind of that tipping point or, or not tipping point, but turning point for you, you know, in terms of like, all right, the, let's do this. You know, on my, my birthday is June 21st, and that was just a couple of weeks before that trip to D.C. That night, my son-in-law asked me if he could marry my daughter, my oldest daughter. And, you know, I said, you're asking the wrong person because she's wife. She's, you know, she's the one to decide who marries, uh, who she marries. But, you know, I, I have a very good relationship with them and I was very touched that, 
you know, we did that on my birthday. They knew I was sick. So obviously they wanted to get that rolling as well. But, um, you know, that, that night I knew something had to happen, but I was just so weak and so sick. I mean, chemo was really kicking my butt on top of everything that I've been through. But when we got down to D.C., I finally felt, um, I, you know, they finally got my pain lost through, you know, a lot of heavy medication. Because before you get diagnosed when it's just a, a random GI problem, they don't want to give you anything because, you know, a lot of times that can make your problem worse depending on mm-hmm. what GI symptoms are. But it's also a common excuse for people to try to get pain medications because it is so difficult to diagnose and easy to make up things. So I, I, I knew what was going on from my healthcare experience, but as a patient, you know, I was suffering. So you around, they finally got my pain under control, but I was on so many different pain medications. I wanted to get off of them. And when, when that pain started to break, when I wasn't, you know, taking the pain medications, when I, when I knew, okay, I don't have to keep taking this. I quit that cold turkey too. When we were down there, I, I had, uh, patches that I had to wear. I, I mm-hmm. They weren't real happy that I did that because, you know, I, <laughs> they, they don't want you going through withdrawals, but yeah. It was yeah. The best to deal with. But. <laughs> Cranky <laughs> patient. I, I knew I needed to, to do something different to, to take control. I had great support with my wife, my family, my kids, friends, and stuff that told me I had the right the plan. Um, I knew when I went to Michigan Medicine, I was in the right place from the day we stopped in the facility. Even though, you know, it's a tough prognosis, I knew we were in the right place to get the care that I would need. But I had I had all those things except me, and that's what you know. I just I knew I had to put everything I had into it, and it was it was tough because I. Um, I mean, I hit my 5K PR uh, in February 2019 before I started getting really sick. And then two months later, we ran a race for tax day and I could really finish a 5K. And then that was the last time I was able to run until July when I got back from that trip to DC. I think we went out, I, I maybe ran a mile and a half, but. After nine rounds of full furanox, a few months later, I was able to, the day after my uh, seventh treatment, I think it was, I went out and ran a 10-mile race, a local race. And then after a month, we did a half marathon. I haven't been able to get back up to a full marathon yet, but we've done a few half marathons in that time. Still, my my goal, and that's kind of what led me here. Project. So, treatment wise, you you, I mean, I know you used like DC as that turning point, but you come back, you continue the treatment, the flufluranox, you got the pain under control, you start being more active, and then where are you right now in in terms of treatment? Were you ever able to get surgery? You're still doing treatment. What does that look like? So after the nine rounds of fulfurinox, I had a couple of weeks off and then I, I did 25 rounds of radiation, um, five days a week for five weeks, uh, one round of chemo every Monday, 
during that five weeks. I kept working through that whole time. I would uh, work my shift in the morning and drive myself down to radiation in the afternoon. And that was October, November, 2019. I was finally able to have my surgery in December of 2019. So you had a Whipple? I had a distal pancreatectomy. Distal. Yep. Took out my spleen, my gallbladder. They did a lot of uh, vascular work. Basically, we routed most of my insides, blood flow. So that was December of 20... 2019. 2019. So this was all pre pandemic then, really. I mean, well, I guess depending. Yeah. I'm not going down that. I mean, I know they said it was in the country like in late 19, but, you know, no one was testing. But, you know, I, I know for edification purposes, it was really like March of 2020, I guess, is when everything yeah. kind of came to a screeching halt. Yep. So right before, so after the distal, did you go back in for more chemo, more radiation, or was it just kind of surveillance? Um, once, yeah, once I was done, the initial plan was for me to have some more treatment after surgery, but I did have some complications. Um, and I actually, recovery was a lot worse and a lot longer than we expected. As well as I handled chemo and radiation, I thought surgery would be, uh, be a snap for me. And I was in the hospital for nine days. I swirled, I swirled the drain a couple of times while I was in there, but uh, I came home and I thought, you know, we had thought that I had developed pseudocyst, but what it was, it was um, walled off necrosis at the surgical site. So basically, I had this dead tissue that was uh, pushing up against my stomach. I wasn't able mm. to eat. Even I, I gained back almost all the weight that I had lost. By the time I went to surgery, I was back up to 180 pounds. And by the time I, I think it was probably March of 2020, four months after my surgery, I'm down to 135 pounds. So I had lost even more weight after surgery because I couldn't eat, I couldn't do anything. I mean, it was, it was rough. But, um, I mean, it was, it was day to day, and I'd say probably May I was able to finally get out and start walking again, and able to pick up running shortly after that during covid that was like may was yeah. like well yeah, right when covid was ripping through so okay. that had to be a little weird yeah. coming back but, into yeah well because i was doing so poorly after my surgery they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have started chemo anyway so yeah by the time i was finally healthy enough to start they said hey you're you're not showing any signs. We're not seeing anything on the CT. We're not seeing anything in your tumor markers that lead us to believe that we didn't get everything. So we just decided we'll just keep watching. And that's really when my surveillance started. So you've been in surveillance since really May of 2020. Um, so what do you do? Go for scans every three, six months? What I think it's, I know it varies sometimes. Actually, I, I backed off on my scans because, you know, a scan is not going to cure it. It's, it, it may find it. And even if it finds it, it's not always necessarily going to lead to treatment. Because, so at that point, you really got to consider, you know, how you're feeling, what your quality of life. And so I'm doing my scans every year. 
I had one done. Actually, I had my skin done for my checkup just a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to continue to go yearly until my five-year mark. We'll go from there. So, six. yeah, I do get my blood work every six months. I deal with the oncologist every six months, but we're only doing scans every, every, every year. So, I got to ask the question, and this is a loaded question. Knowing that you're both nurses, you're in the medical field. I got a lot of questions. We're going to go down this rabbit hole here in a second. <laughs> but this is the first question. Do you think, in hindsight, it's 2020 here, and I'd love to have both of your opinions on this. Do you think it was worse or better that you work in the medical field when you got the diagnosis? I think it was better. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, I, I was reading through every result that I got when I was going through that period of trying to get diagnosed. I knew from the first CT, what I was reading wasn't right. And, you know, and that's not the fault of people at the uh, facility that it was done because they probably have never seen this because it mm -hmm. is uh, like I said I'm healthy you know I, I didn't have any history or any risk factors there was nothing for them to think it was what it was it was what it was and it wasn't like the images showed you know a big scary tumor sticking its tongue out of it it was it was very hidden um, but some of the other signs were there um, you know that some people you know, may not have understood if they're just reading the role report. The end, the end outcome was definitely better because we had the medical knowledge that we did. Living through it in the moment, knowing everything that you know, I don't know if that's better because it can definitely play a mental game with you. And just my anxiety and mental health through these last three, four years has definitely taken a toll. Um, you know, just from when he first started to get symptoms, Googling, going down those Google rabbit holes. So, you know, I, I had even said right on, like, I, I think it could be pancreatic cancer. Even before, like, one, one of your very first CTs. But, I mean, obviously, we're not, we're not doctors. We're not. But, yeah, but you're, so I. How do I say this? I'm probably going to piss a lot of, and I have a lot of doctor friends, so I don't really care. But I think like, and you guys know this. Here's how I'll put this. I remember when, when I went through my own experience with my dad. And that was like the first like big medical thing for us. My mom had breast cancer back in 01, but like I was living my life and like it was early stage, you know, and it was just different back in 01 compared to what it is today. And I think I remember going to the hospital a couple times, but then with my dad, like I was there for everything. I didn't miss, I missed like two appointments in three and a half years. And it struck me like after the first month, I'm like, these doctors really don't do much. It's really the nurses. Like legit, like it, it, you're like, you get both laughing because you know, that's true. Right. And I get it. Like, hey, listen, I'm not here. The, the doctors, I, when I say that, like, okay, now I'm, I'm going to get like hate mail from everyone or, you know, whatever. People are going to blow me up for this. I don't really care. 
But, you know, like at the end of the day, like I've heard so many stories of nurses like noticing things like oncology nurses noticing things like the doctor prescribes like X, Y, Z, you know, chemo regimen. And then, you know, while the patient's in the chair, the nurse realizes like, oh, crap, like that's not right. That shouldn't happen. Right. Because they interact with the patients more so than the doctors. And so and I'm not trying to like badmouth doctors. And this is my second loaded question on this, you guys being in the medical field. And this is a good segue to this is, do you think though, being what you guys experienced, what you guys just shared, what you guys knew, and Michael, you said it like, hey, like I, I was able to read, to interpret what was on there because that is your job. So you understand what's coming on those reports, but the place, and I'm not trying to put the words back into your mouth, probably the right way, but like the place where you were probably wasn't the right place to be until you got to Michigan where that doctor realized like, Hey, this was going on. So what do I mean by that? I'm not trying to bad mouth doctors, but what I'm trying to say is, do you guys think is the system is broken, right? The system that we have potentially because Doctors, you know, they see they have to see 150 patients a day, right? And they literally get five to 10 minutes with that patient. They've got to make these quick diagnoses. They've got to see these things. And then they've got to move on to the next patient, right? And, and part of that's the system. Part of it's insurance. Part of it's, hey, like our society, everyone's so sick, right? You guys are in medical, you know, in the medical field. You see that, right? How many people, you know, come in overweight? They're on medication. They're on like tons of pills that you know, have adverse effects and the things that they do that they probably don't pay attention to that put them in the ER, or whatever may happen. So those doctors have to make those like split decisions right away. So in fairness to them, I'm not, I'm not necessarily bad mouthing them, but like if they don't see something and that's probably the frustration with pancreatic cancer, not that I'm walking back here and I'll let you guys answer the question here, but that, you know, pancreatic cancer is so vague is the other thing. Right. So someone coming in with belly ache, belly pain, you know, that doesn't really <laughs> could be anything. Right. And insurance isn't going to pay for an MRI or, you know, a clinician's not going to do an endoscopic um, ultrasound because someone has a belly ache. So my question back to you guys is do you think it's a system here at fault? I don't know if I would say fault. Um, Cracks. Do you think there, there's, there's yes. definitely cracks in the system? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, we, we try to do a one size fits all approach and that's, that's where we run into problems. Like I said, you know, they, they, they have a, they have an algorithm, they have an algorithm that they've got to go through and that's, you know, partly because of insurance, but you know, it, you know, the reality is that healthcare is limited in its resources and um, you know, we've done a lot over the last several years with breast cancer, being able to get women mammograms when they need mm -hmm. them. But there's a lot of focus on that, and it's it's hard to shift those resources around to other places like pancreatic cancer. Um, and you know, the chances are we may have 200 other people in, in a doctor's office with the same exact symptoms as I had, and most of them would have just been gas or maybe an ulcer or maybe a hernia, but not pancreatic cancer. So it gets thrown to the side. And, you know, even, even like with the tumor marker they can follow, there are so many things that could cause that to be elevated. 
activated that's not a screening tool. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just the scary reality of what pancreatic cancer is. It's, it's so hard to detect it. And, you know, I, if I knew the answer, I, you know. There has to be a better way, though. There, there, there does have to be a better way. And it would be nice if we could get something like the breast cancer um, awareness. You know, but like I said, I think that it gets put to the side a lot. Number one, the age that most people get this is higher age. You know, it's it's usually, I I don't know what the most recent statistics are, but I think it was over 70 people that have led unhealthy lives. And, you know, if we only have so much money to put into research for something we're going to put that where it pays off the most for our society the younger people um you know i and i don't know the answer to that that's i mean yeah i guess to be fair it is a broken system overall for sure yeah and that maybe I was harsh there. I, I think the one the one piece is like, and, and this is where we come back to. But what you just said, Michael, is that you know if we could be where breast cancer is, and so we know statistically breast cancer impacts more people, right? So, um, and it's more females, which you know, uh, as I mentioned, my mom's a breast; she's two time breast cancer survivor. So I am thankful for everything that breast cancer has done. But pancreatic cancer took my dad, right? And and I do feel. You know, we're we're up against the the wall a bit with pancreatic cancer because it's a sixty thousand person disease where breast cancer is like two hundred fifty thousand. Now, if we look at statistically, like where we are mortality and survivability treatments, then you know th- there's no argument to make that we shouldn't get more resources, right? Because now pancreatic cancer, you know, isn't very good with mortality, isn't very good with you know we have no early detection. Um, but if you look at breast cancer where they were able to make the strides and now we're seeing it in colon cancer, right? Like rates are going down because they have early detection. Um, but you know, I think the system, the system does do some good things. You know, it doesn't work for everyone. And, but this is where I think having these conversations, having hard conversations about it, right, are, are how we educate and hopefully that we change things, right? And, and groups like ours, there's many other groups in this space that, you know, advocate for more funding, advocate for more, you know, uh, support from pharmaceutical companies, um, you know, from bigger systems so that the bigger systems, it becomes a trickle down. I know in a lot of states, you know, uh, you know, in Michigan, you Michigan's got a huge healthcare system, you know, there's Henry Ford, you know, and, and so I, I hope we can get to the place where breast cancer is in this country, you know, for pancreatic cancer, but it is going to have, you know, we're going to have to have these conversations, right. And amplify these stories, like what you guys have gone through. So that's where I think this podcast is so important. I want to ask you guys a couple questions here. Before this, and in hindsight, it's always 2020. And I know maybe I can relate to this. I was never a runner, became a runner through all of this. You guys know this, and anyone who's listening is a runner. As a runner, you know your body's pretty well, right? Like, you know, when that (laughs) you're both not. You know, when that hamstring starts tightening up, or you got that pain in the glue, or your back. I mean, 
Michael, you're my age. So, you know, we're no longer spring chickens, right? Like, it's not like when we were in our 20s when we could just go run and we could eat whatever we want, right? And the calories just burn off. Now in our in our late 40s, like, we got to be very careful, uh, you know, what we eat, what we do. And those little aches and pains, I think, as you get older, you feel them more and more. <laughs> stick around. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The longer we're around, the longer those, those things stick around. Right. So, and again, 2020 in terms of hindsight here, but I know you said this kind of started in, you know, right after that 18 and that January 19 going to Mexico. Could you look back at any time, like in the last 10 years and go, yeah, you know, like I had like, Remember when I had that episode with gas, like I or you know something I ate that didn't agree with me, but then it kind of went away, right? And I just feel as runners, like we know, we know our body, like right, like or maybe it was like, ah oh, man, like I just couldn't, I just didn't feel like I could recover after that training run, you know, for like a month, and I didn't know why, like I didn't do anything different, I just was like tired and sore and you know pain in pain for like a month for no reason. No, I. Earlier that summer, I did have a couple of uh, run with a, a running group every during the summertime, and one of the runs that I went on, I was just really struggling. I was dehydrated, and you know my my stomach was really bothering me. And I know in years past, I would have you know like a weird pain in my stomach. I look back now and. Like you said, 2020, it was probably pancreatitis and hmm. just too stubborn to really do anything about it. Um, before, I, I think it was 2010, um, that's when I really started getting into running again. I got an overweight. Uh, I got out of the military back in the early 90s. I gained quite a bit of weight and I think I would may have gotten up to close to 280 pounds and two, yeah, 2010 is when I decided I'm going to lose it because ironically, um, I wanted to get healthy because I didn't want to go into my forties and fifties having medical issues that my kids were going to have. You know, I didn't want to be a burden to them. I didn't want to grow up and grow old and have issues that they were always going to have to deal with, uh, dealing with me. So I just wanted to get my health under control. Started running, lost weight, got down, you know, 180, 190. That's that's where I'm at today. But you know, running was a big part of that. Um, once I got that that weight under control, I really didn't have that problem with my stomach too much anymore. Um, you know that those tumors can be there for years before they're detected. So I may have already had it then, and you know, I, I don't know if. Losing the weight, getting in shape, slowed it down. But I, I really believe that I probably had it before I started uh, you know, trying to take better care of myself. And it's just ironic that when I felt I was in the best shape of my life is when it said, "Hey, here I am." Yeah, I think uh, that's a common story that I've heard before. You know, where people decide to like change things up a bit. Uh, whatever for whatever reason, and get healthy, and then to your point, it's like, hey, look who's here! Look who joined the party! Right? Talk about timing. 
And, and I think that's a little bit of the frustrating part, you know, not having early detection, you know, in this space is that, you know, we don't have the ability, you know, we don't have a blood test like prostate cancer. We don't have a mammogram like breast cancer, which can identify, you know, and some women who have, you know, we just came out of October. So I know this. And again, having a mom who's a two-time survivor, you know, dense breasts, they can do ultrasounds, right? And they can see things. And now with the imaging, you know, with, with breast exams, they can see, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, a very, very uh, early stage of, of breast cancer. So it, it, it's frustrating, you know, um, that with this disease, we, we just are not there yet. But I have faith and I have hope that, you know, if we keep amplifying and telling these stories um, and keep pushing and pushing, that uh, that we'll get there. And something that you said early on, I was going to jump in and I, I wrote a note here, you know, I think to your point, I think in the past, this has always been, a, been known as an old person's disease. Not that it, that I, I don't think that like, just because you're old doesn't mean it's okay. Right. Like that's one thing. But then I think the other thing, and I, I don't know, I think I've seen some data where, you know, the, the number has gone down a little bit. But not significant enough to say like to, to, I think what you were saying is like, it's not like 20 year olds getting this, right? But there are some 20 year olds that get pancreatic cancer. It's very uncommon, but it happens. And, and we've helped many, many, many young people. Um, sadly, we just lost a gentleman, um, you know, who was under 30. So, and he battled for, you know, five years. Uh, but the one thing that I can share with our patient financial aid program that we help patients around the country with, we saw some fascinating data. And that is the majority of the patients that we've helped in the time that we've been in existence, 12 years, fall between 51 and 71. So that to me says that, that this isn't, again, an old person's disease. Yes, I guess if you, if you want to break down the data, typically it's people you know in older ages that are retired. But we are seeing a lot of young people get diagnosed in this disease. And quite frankly, I think 70 is kind of young. I'm not trying to age shame anyone here. Uh, you know, but I know many 70-year-olds that, you know, will be at the New York City Marathon uh, this weekend. And, and I'm sure you guys see it in running, which we're going to talk about in a second. You know, how many, how many old people, you know, this is a run joke, right? When you're running. And you see this older person pass you and you're like, oh, I, I can't let that old person beat me, right? Like, I got to speed up. So how many times have you seen like the old lady or the old guy, you know, finish the half marathon, 10K, 5K and like, you know, set an age record? Yep. yep. So what has, uh, speaking of running, what, what has running, you know, getting back to, you know, what you guys love to do and then doing that post all of this stuff that you've gone through with pancreatic cancer, what's that meant to you guys? And I'd love to hear both thoughts. You know, it was during, you know, his the thick of it, it was really a good distraction for me. So I think it's just been something that's been a constant the entire time. It was something that we were able to do together before. And then it was, even when he wasn't able to run, we had a huge network of running friends that were just really rallied around us, were, you know, supported us through the 
the hard times, um, came over, helped us do our yard work, brought us meals, um, just runners are, are good people. <laughs> Not that we didn't have other friends and family. They were, they were ones that, that they really stepped it up. Um, and just, I was able to, it was a good outlet for me. Um, what, while he was sick, um, you know, during his recovery, um, after, during COVID, I mean, I just, I don't know where my mental health would be if I didn't have that. Um, probably not really, really bad. <laughs> um, so, and it's, it's still something that, you know, now that he can, you know, run with me again, and he's now he's, he's faster than me again. It's, <laughs> it's just, that's awesome. It's just been a constant for us. And now I just, I love that, um, you know, how Project Purple is involved with running and I want to give back some, somehow, some way. And I love how it's tied with running. So I think it's just the per- perfect, you know, full circle. That made any sense. <laughs> that, it, Michelle, you're uh, you're speaking to the choir, and uh, I said Michelle, it's Missy. Apologize. Yeah. Uh, you're you're speaking to the choir with that, and uh, I'd love to hear Michael's response, and then I'm going to come back to you because okay. I I I, I want to hear what Michael's experience has been with getting back to running and how that's felt for him. Well, you know, I I had a hard time after surgery just because of my recovery. Um, it, it just took me so long to get back into it. And I really struggled for a long time. And, um, and I still do. Well, you know, with the surgery I had, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but GI issues keep me dehydrated quite a bit. So I, I honestly believe that running is what helps with my life. It got me healthy before I got sick. If I had been in the same condition that I had been in years prior, I don't think I would have made it. I wouldn't have been able to make it to surgery. And the doctors, you know, my oncologist and surgeon both said my, my physical condition of what allowed me to even start chemo and to be able to do the surgery and recover from it. Because, you know, it, it was just, the tumor was just really, really wrapped up and they knew. You know, my surgery was going to be very difficult. Treatment was going to be difficult, and it was. But I, I believe running is what got me in shape to get through that. And I knew that I had to get back to that afterwards. Now, I'm, I'm a very competitive person with myself. Uh, you know, the only person I want to beat out there is myself from yesterday. So I was, I'm always pushing for PRs when I, when I run. Um, I don't necessarily run for the enjoyment that a lot of people do. Like, I, you know, just to go out and run isn't always fun for me. But, you know, the races, when I can go out and push myself is what I enjoy the most. And that's what was lacking in the beginning of the pandemic because races were shut down everywhere. Um, it was hard to meet with groups. So, you know, when we first started, it was just the two of us. And we typically didn't run together much before that. Um, usually because we just run our own paces, but 
since I've been sick, we run, you know, almost exclusively together, you know, except for some races we'll run our own in some place. But uh, training runs, we do everything together, and that's really brought us close. Um, and I, I love she, she doesn't always like it. I do push her a little bit sometimes. But, um, it's brought a, another thing that's brought us closer together. And, you know, I, I know that I need to continue to keep myself in shape because there's always that chance that this is going to come knocking. And if and when it does, I want to be ready like I was the last time. I probably will never be as fast as what I was before. Um, you know, I, I was hoping to do a marathon back in April of this year. I started training in January. I actually ran quite a few miles in January, but it was really cold up here um, in January and February. And there was one one particular walk run that I went on. I think you know the temperature was like five degrees below zero when I went out, and I had a 18 mile run plan that day. And I I got about 11 miles in and I had to call her because I was, I just, I couldn't do it. My hydration packs were completely frozen within a half a mile. So I was out there running without anything. I'm already dehydrated just because I'm always dehydrated. Mm -hmm. I I didn't, I didn't sign up for that. I, no, I'm not doing an April marathon in Michigan (laughs) or training. April marathon in Michigan. I, I, I'm there with you, Missy. Like I don't, uh, I've trained for Boston a couple of times and that's an April marathon. And I think every year that I was in Boston, like it was bad weather. Like we had like, I think remember one year it was like 32. We got one of those 32 inch Northeasters and I'm like, this sucks doing 18 miles on a treadmill in my basement. I'm like, yeah, oh, I'm done. Yeah. He did I like refuse. Yeah. Those are, those no. are miserable. Um, you know, there, there's there's a couple of things here, and Missy, I'm going to get back to what you said because you nailed it uh, in terms of what we do here. And from the caregiver's perspective, what you said, like uh, I like beaming inside and, and on my face. If you watch a video, I guess that's why I decided to do what I did here. I I, mean, I, I hated hated running before my dad got diagnosed. And then my dad gets diagnosed with this this disease and I turned to run it. It became such a positive thing. And and so, you know, that's what this journey has been for us here is, you know, as you guys know, and if you guys have described, you know, as ugly as this thing is called pancreatic cancer, we've tried to bring positivity into the world with running. And I, and I felt at the time, um, you know, I looked at all the other groups and some of them were doing running, but no one to the way that I envisioned or we envisioned running here at Project Purple, um, really giving people the opportunity to honor and remember and celebrate, you know, people that they have been touched with this disease and, and give them a, uh, you know, a platform to do that. And clearly it's evolved. Um, I, I honestly, and I've said this before, I never thought we would do marathons and now we become kind of the leader in the marathon space for pancreatic cancer. You know, we're in four world majors. We're in a bunch of other races. Um, you know, clearly the pandemic changed a lot, but you know, things have, you know, quickly gone back to pre-pandemic, which is wild in its own self, right? Uh, you know, with all these races, right? So it's just what you said, you hit it right on the, the head, uh, you know, and why running to us is just so special because if you're a runner and you're listening, you get it. And if you're not, 
I'd highly recommend to start running because th- that feeling that you get, the clarity, the endorphins, the positivity is just something that, again, you, you got to go through it to understand it. Um, so I appreciate that. And then, Michael, what you said um, in terms of exercising while going through this, and I said something earlier about, you know, we've had all these survivors and some things that are common is exercise. So I think being able to do that. Now, you're a runner, so you turn to running. Not everyone's a runner. And so we're not telling everyone if you're not a runner to go become a runner if you're going through pancreatic cancer. But maybe that exercise is yoga. Maybe it's Pilates. Maybe it's just stretching. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe it's just getting up every day and going to the mailbox and back. Or maybe it's doing you know weights or Peloton, whatever that is. We've got a guy just uh, had on the podcast. He does a ton of Peloton. He loves riding bikes. But so he Peloton is his thing. It is so critical. And, and eventually we will put some pen to paper and find the data because I think exercise, and there are some, there is some data out there that how important for all cancers, like if you're battling any type of cancer, how important exercise is. So that is, is just so powerful um, that you shared that uh, with the audience uh, because it, it is truly a, a benefit. Again, doesn't have to be go out and run marathons, train for half marathons, but getting out and being active and exercising is so critical when going through any cancer journey. I've got two questions left here for you, and then we're going to share with our audience where they can connect with you. Um, This question's for both of you guys. I know we've talked about mental health a bit. Um, Missy, I know you mentioned it, you know, from your perspective, Michael, you mentioned it from your perspective in that same vein though, let's say someone listening to this podcast has just been diagnosed. And because we have both parties here, the caregiver and the patient, what advice would you give that person from a caregiver perspective for Missy? And from the patient's perspective, from Michael, and it could be a multitude of things, but we, I would love to share your thoughts on advice for someone who was just diagnosed listening to this podcast and the caregiver. So advice for caregivers, um, accept help would be the first one. It's difficult for me was accepting help. And everyone always asks, and it's hard to answer that question what what can you do what can we do to help you i don't know (laughs) but if someone offers something specific that i mean just just accept help from other people um try to carry on as much normalcy as you can um that's uh, where running really came in with me um and working as well. Uh, a lot of people were shocked that both Michael and I kept working full time throughout his entire journey, and we work together. We are coworkers. We work on the same team. Um, we're both nurses, but we do IT, so we are each other's like teammates at work. So um, as hard as that was, it was still a good I don't want to say distraction but also like a good way to keep things more normal 
Um, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't really reach out as much as Michael did to, you know, online forums or, you know, Facebook groups or anything like that. But, um, I didn't, there, there came a point where I just had to stop Googling things. I had to stop looking at statistics. I had to just, just stop looking online things <laughs> and just say, you know, whatever is going to be, is going to be, we, our story is our own story. And I just have to look at the statistics anymore. Powerful. Michael, your advice. You know, from the, from the very beginning, when somebody finds out it's, it's very overwhelming, uh, I would tell anybody to allow yourself to feel whatever you need to feel and whatever emotions you need to express. But don't dwell on them because it's not going to do a single thing to make it better. And it can actually harm the time that you may have. You know, I, I'm very realistic. I, I, I try to, to be hopeful, but at the same time, I know. So I made my peace with you know, where I was at. And, you know, like I said, when I found out that I was diagnosed, I was grateful because I knew what it was and I knew it would give us a plan. Even though I had felt and I, I knew my body was dying, I knew what that prognosis meant. I was able to make peace with it. and put it aside and focus on getting better. And I likened my new journey in cancer with running a race, with running a marathon. You know, a lot of times, I mean, if you've run, you know, there are just some times when you look at the telephone pole up the road and say, I just got to get there and I can take a break. And that's what this this journey was like. I just got to get through this chemo treatment. And then we'll, We'll move the telephone pole after that. But I just got to get to this next step. And there were days, many, many days where it took everything I had just to get up, out of bed to get to the couch. But I always tried to keep moving a little bit more every day and, and keep pushing myself. And, uh, you know, I, I do know, like I said, how much weight was put on Missy and the rest of my family with this diagnosis. It wasn't mine alone. There were days, you know, where she had to take care of me while taking care of herself, while taking care of the kids. And, you know, as she expressed, I did get involved and I am involved in some groups on, on Facebook. And one of the things that I, I see too often is the sick person not really appreciating what the other person's going through. It's hard. It really is hard when you've been diagnosed with this to, to stop your feelings, to set them aside, and try to focus on somebody else. But without those people around you supporting you, it's going to be a tough battle. And I'm, I'm a pretty independent person. I tried to do as much as I could. I mean, I kept mowing my lawns. Yeah, you were. <laughs> there were days I could barely sit on a lawnmower, but I... And, you know, I got it done and I tried not to put any of that on her any more than possible. It's very stubborn. 
yeah, I am, I am very stubborn, but, uh, you know, you just you got to keep setting little goals for yourself. You got to appreciate the people that are around you and realize that you're not the only one dealing with this. It may be different for them, but it's not any less impactful in their lives. It's Powerful. Very humbling for both of us. The, the, help, the help that she needed from outside and the, the help that I needed from her. You know, things that 40, 49 years old, you didn't think you'd have to ask your wife for, but. I, I think, and in, in this is, uh, I appreciate you guys both sharing those thoughts. I look back in my experience, and I don't know, I don't have the answer to this, and this is the question. I think this cancer has this unique effect to really humble people and degrade people. And what do I mean by that? You're both shaking your heads. So maybe understand, but for the audience, so like I remember my dad, he went from like 180 pounds down to like 140. He was embarrassed, right? He was depressed. Michael, you mentioned the GI issues, right? Like that's not something like people, I think it's it, it becomes taboo, right? Like, and that's also a symptom, right? Like having massive GI issues is a symptom of pancreatic cancer, We've had a, a guest on that had, you know, GI issues nonstop for two weeks and was embarrassed to go to the hospital or go to, go to their GP and say, hey, like, I can't stop going to the bathroom. So I, I don't know if this is, and I don't have the answer here, but like, you know, what you guys say is so powerful because, you know, is this a cancer or is this like, this is like the other piece of pancreatic cancer where, you know, and I think as society, we don't allow people to, like, Michael, you're saying, like, you you didn't want to rely on other people because you wanted to be strong. You wanted to be able to do everything yourself. But maybe we don't allow people to say, hey, it's okay. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be this persona in a way. Like, it's okay. You can accept the help. There's nothing wrong with accepting help or asking people to mow your lawn or to come over and put new light bulbs in or change the batteries because the fire alarms need to have batteries switched out every six months and it's daylight savings time, right? Like it's, it's almost like, and I get, I get where maybe some of the groups, you know, we parade, I have the word superhuman on my shirt, right? So we parade these people that are cancer survivors and we put them on as superheroes. And then everyone underneath that feels that they have to live up to that superhuman persona. So maybe, again, I don't have the answer. Maybe that, that maybe we're doing an injustice to everyone to not being able to accept help and saying it's okay to accept help and do not do everything. Oh, absolutely. That, that help is, it's so important. The support. We could not have gotten through this without all the support we had. It was Incredible. Just very humbling. It's powerful. Yeah. Um, I mean, you talk, you know, when you talk about the GI issues, it was hard for me after after surgery because of the changes in my, my system. Um, I mean, it, almost a year, it, it, 
I mean, the pandemic was, people are going to, pandemic was kind of a blessing for me because it meant that we're, we're very active. Like we, like last night we went to a concert. We went, I mean, we go to, con- we do stuff together all the time. And we've gotten back to that since the pandemic was, you know, pretty much passed. But for that first year after my surgery, I was afraid to leave the house. I didn't even want to go to dinner because I didn't know when nature would call. Yeah. And when it calls, it's, you, you don't have time to deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I was, it was very difficult for me to, to be engaged like that outside of our house. And, um, you know, I, I, I know if we were with friends or anything, I know they would understand, but the population at large, you know, we are, we are quick to judge on that. I, I do get why a lot of people are afraid to, to go out. Not a lot of people have had the response by And we don't support those people in the way they need it. And, you know, I, I understand that not everybody can, can get out and go do the things that I do especially after being diagnosed and they, they need their safe space too to be able to, you know, be what they need to do to get through this. And, you know, my experience is I am stubborn, but I had to keep pushing through, but you know, that's, that's just not the case for everybody. And, you know, I think because of the prognosis, it really does, had a lot of extra emotional baggage that, you know, someone with cancers might not. I mean, nobody wants to get any kind of cancer, but, you know, there are just some that you hear, you've got, and you go dark, you go to dark places immediately. And it's hard to get out of that sometimes. Well, hopefully sharing stories like yours, people listening to it, find these strategies and don't get there, right? And that's what the hope is with with podcasts and and you know other groups, you know, raising awareness. And and that's where I think, you know, something that you both said about breast cancer, right? Like breast cancer, that that thought, that mentality is what it is because of the work they've done and the awareness that they've done. So we just have to continue to amplify, raise the volume, you know, and have these conversations and have these discussions and let people, you know, know that and share these strategies, but also something that you just said, there's nothing in there that says that you can't be part of that 11%, right? Like the 11% is the survival rate. So like we have this really weird ability in this space to say, okay, you have pancreatic cancer. Yes, it's not easy. It's awful. But you could be part of that 11%. You could be the success. Right. And that's where I think we, we also fail. Uh, I mentioned before, you know, with, with, uh, you know, with, with, uh, you know, the mental health aspect or the acceptance of, of help. But I think we also fail in this space of making that more apparent to everyone that they can be in that group. Right. And I, I think that, you know, I, Missy, you mentioned, you know, the internet being very dark. I think that's part of the problem, you know, and I get that people, you know, go through a traumatic experience and want to share their experience. And sometimes those experiences are very dark. And I know a lot of the pages can become very dark and very negative 
Um, uh, but I, I think that's part of the problem, you know, is, is people on the internet and a lot of that stuff's not controlled. It's not policed. It's not even vetted sometimes. Right. And clearly we've seen <laughs> over the last couple of years, the disinformation, I think we were supposed to have a disinformation czar, but that never materialized. So, you know, maybe one day we'll have a disinformation czar for cancer and maybe that a lot of that negativity will be, will be eliminated, you know, or, or the, the stories that are, you know, fabricated, you know, on certain cancer journeys and stuff like that. My last question here to both you guys, um, and I'd love to hear uh, both response as well. And this is a loaded question. There's no right or wrong to this, but given your experience that you guys shared with us and what you guys have gone through, how do you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition? Uh, in, in one word, it's hell. It's um, well, it, it is a loaded question. Yes. There's no right or wrong. So if that's how you, you sum it up, Michael, hell, we roll with it. It's, Missy, do you want to add to that? I, I mean, it's, it's something that you see a celebrity gets once or twice a year, but you rarely know anybody that personally that has been affected by it. So it's like, is that, is that a real thing? You know, certainly pancreatic cancer is one of those things that eliminates the argument that money fixes everything because obviously a lot of people with a lot of money get this and I mean, it, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Um, it's about nerve detection, but I mean, pancreatic cancer. I mean, it's life changing for whoever gets it, anyone who is around them, loves them. I mean, it's it, it's like you said, it's so surreal. Like when he was first diagnosed, it just did not even feel like reality. Oh, that I know would get pancreatic cancer, not my husband, but now that we're on the other side of it, I mean, it's definitely changed. It's definitely changed who we are, and I mean, it was it was hell going through it. You're right, but I mean, we came out on the other side. So so far. <laughs> It's, it's taken me some time to, you know, I, I've known that I need to give back somehow because my, you know, I am very fortunate. You know, I'm not just to survive, but to thrive. And to be able to get back to where I was at, close to it. But along with that, you know, I, I do fight that survivor survivor's guilt. And I've asked why me? many times, but not why me, why did I get cancer? I asked why me, why am I still here? You know, I, I, I never thought that getting diagnosed with this was, you know, God's vengeance or karma or anything else. It just, it is. I mean, cancer is part of being human and that was one that hit me. So I never felt sorry for myself, but I do struggle with that survivor's guilt. And 
it, it's taken me some time to really want to be able to get to a point where I can, you know, we've, we've talked about this. We've done interviews. I did a commercial for Michigan Medicine uh, last year because I do want my story to inspire people. But right alongside that is that, that constant nag of, you know, what am I supposed to be doing with this? Yeah. Kind of be, you know, I kind of lay in the shadows a little bit because I, you know, I, it's not that I might be knowing my story. I guess I'm afraid to really go forward with this because what if I don't make it? And people look to me for hope and they say, well, I didn't make it. So I, I do, I do fight with that. Even though I know every day that goes by that we don't see it as that much better for me long term. But there's always that chance. It's always in the back of my head. Um, but I know that because I have been blessed with such a good outcome, I need to do something to get back. Yeah. Again, that's where you know Project Purple really winds up with a lot of work. Well, I, I want to thank you guys for sharing that. And um, I'll leave you with this, though. Uh, just live. That's right. You know, you're here. Uh, and like I said before, just a couple uh, minutes ago, you know, there's nothing. I didn't see anything that says you're not part of that 11 and there's nothing in writing. So you're part of that club, man. And you just continue to live. Uh, tomorrow's not guaranteed, but we have today, right? I'm sure you've heard that not to, not to be corny, but you're living and you're inspiring. So I just want to thank you guys for, uh, opening up and sharing your journey with us. If our audience listening at home, maybe there's someone watching or listening that may just be diagnosed, find some correlation in, in what they've gone through and, and what they're facing. If they wanted to connect or reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I I am on Facebook, Michael Skaggs. Um, I'm sure there are a few out there, but you can <laughs> find my picture on there. Um, anybody that wants to reach out to me can reach out to me at my email address, mchl. S-K-G-G-S-1971 at gmail.com. Awesome. Missy and Michael, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple Podcast. It's been an honor to share your journey with pancreatic cancer. It's our honor to be here. Thank Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear or what you watch on YouTube, feel free to share this episode Follow us on YouTube. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Yeah.